You're listening to Community Radio WERU-FM. Right now we are only streaming at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with host Ron Beard is up next. Welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and, like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening, at least this time by um, listening through our streaming uh, capacity, create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. When Haiti was devastated by the earthquake in January of this year, Maine people responded immediately through donations of cash and material. In the weeks and months since, Maine people have also responded as volunteers, giving of themselves. And this morning, we're glad to welcome three guests in our studios to talk about their recent experiences in Haiti. First, Linda Robinson is a nurse midwife with the Women's Health Center in Bar Harbor. Welcome back to Talk of the Towns, Linda. Thank you. Also, Dr. Carol Kuhn is a physician at Seaport Family Practice in Belfast, and she traveled to Haiti with Convit Sante, and uh, we'll ask her about her experiences. Welcome to you, Carol. Thank you. And Liz Durham is a physical physical therapist from Belfast, and she's with a a company called Genesis, and um, we'll ask her more about her experiences, but welcome to you. Thanks. Let's get started by each of you um, talking a little bit about your current work. Um, each of you are coming out of the, the medical field, and um, just maybe start with Linda to talk a little bit about um, the uh, Women's Health Center and your practice as a nurse midwife. Thanks. I, um, I'm employed by MDI Hospital and am um, doing, currently doing women's health, and including primary care and OB, obstetrics, GYN, Full scope women's health care in uh, in Bar Harbor. Um, I'm interested in international work as well. I'm interested in women's health mm. wherever it's needed. Mm-hmm. So. And you've been um, both a Peace Corps volunteer and um, you've um, had an assignment with Doctors Without Borders. Correct. Yeah, I was in um, Democratic Republic of Congo with um, Doctors Without Borders from September 07 to September 08. Right, and some listeners will remember that we've had you on the air talking about that, that experience uh, in the past, as well as, as other topics. Um, Dr. Kuhn, you could tell us a little bit about your practice and, and uh, um, what you're doing in Belfast. Okay. Um, I'm a family physician at Seaport Family Practice in Belfast. We were previously Searsport Family Practice, but we um, moved to Belfast moved. <laughs> about five years ago. And I see patients of all ages, um, and then the medical director at Tall Pines Nursing Home. Uh, we stopped delivering babies about two years ago, mm. but uh, as we got busier in the office. Um, and I'm interested in all po- um, all ages and sort of um, marginal populations have an interest in uh, addiction medicine. And I came to Maine in 1978. I was a physician assistant and joined the National Health Service Corps and worked in Sockaby Valley Health Center in Keyser Falls from 1978 to 1990. Mm. And when I was 40, I went to University of Vermont Medical School um, <coughs> as a Maine resident. 
and completed that, and then my family practice residency at Maine Medical in Portland, and came to Searsport, Seaport, um, soon after. Right. With a, actually, then um, took time out and went also with um, Doctors Without Borders. I was in Nigeria in the year 2000, mm. and then joined the practice. Great. And Liz, um, Liz Durham, um, tell us a little bit about your work and, and how you uh, got interested in this. Um, I'm a physical therapist. I work, again, for the company called Genesis. We have 12 nursing homes in Maine, and I'm actually a clinical specialist for the company. So I travel to 12 different Genesis homes and provide clinical support and education for the therapists and the teams, as well as doing some patient care time as well. Um, um, I'm from Maine originally, but I lived out in Colorado for over 20 years. And while I was there, I was involved with a couple of organizations. My hospital actually had a connection with Nicaragua. Mm. I never had the opportunity to go because I had small children, but I I was on the committee and helped, um, you know, put together supplies and do fundraising. Um, And I also was part of an organization called Los Papitos, which is also another traveling therapy company that goes to third world countries. Um, So I've always had an interest in doing this. I think part of the fact that I'm a full-time working mom um, with two children, I haven't had the opportunity, and I had the chance to go with my brother who organized a group to go in February, and I got a phone call at 6 a.m. in the morning while I'm driving to Portland. I'm going to Haiti on Thursday. Make it happen. And I did. And I was even having the first week vacation with my family in five years. So they um, supported me and let me get out of the family vacation. Um, and that's how I ended up going to Haiti. Mm. And what's your brother's work? How did he get involved? <clears throat> He's a hand surgeon in Flagstaff, Arizona. And he does a lot of his own kind of, not, not Doctors Without Borders, but the same kind of, he works with different organizations. He puts together his own surgical teams. Um, he goes to Mongolia every, on a yearly basis. He does a lot of trips down into Colombia with another friend. And so when Haiti happened, he thought, wow, this is so, what I want to do. So we sent out an email to everyone he knew. And he's um, organized, we have our own little um, flagstaff, Northern Arizona Orthopedics um, Organization now, supporting Haiti. In fact, tonight, if we can't go, it's in flagstaff, but we have a fundraiser um, that we're doing. They've already raised $20,000, and we have a silent and live auction happening in flag tonight. Mm. So they're, they've gone now. We've sent three groups already since the middle of February. Mm. And what was your role in this particular um, instance? <clears throat> Well, I ex- at first, I think I had everyone ask me, even my colleagues, why are you going to Haiti? You're a therapist. Don't they need surgeons? And, you know, my first thought, to be honest with you, was, okay, I'm a physical therapist. And when a patient has surgery in our country, when do they get therapy? Day one, day two. And that's what it is. It's the rehab focus. So I kept saying to people, I'm sure there's a need. I'm sure there's a need. Mm. And when I got there, there was a need. And thank God multiple therapists arrived. We didn't have enough therapists for the case, um, the caseload that we had. Um, but we had, I think we had nine. The organization we ended up going with was Project MediShare. Um, it's run out of the University of Miami. And so our little organization became volunteers for MediShare. So we went as a large group. It's a great organization um, to be able to go to Haiti uh, with because they're, they're relatively organized. <clears throat> and um, they have a nice flow, so you go for five or eight days, and they try to organize so 40 people leave, 40 people come. Mm. And there's a plethora of medical professionals. It's, it's, it's heartwarming and amazing to see the outpouring from the United States. Mm. 
Mm. So, uh, had you had any connection with Haiti before, or just n known about <clears throat> Haiti? I'd known about Haiti. I'm friends with um, uh, Dr. Kuhn, and I also have a friend. Um, there's a nurse at, in Belfast that I know goes to Haiti every year. Um, and it was in the back of my mind that that was the place I was going to end up. I actually thought I would always end up in Yugoslavia after their war. That was my <laughs> – so this is how long I've been wanting to do something like this. Uh -huh. I know I'm going to be there to help those amputees. And I thought maybe Iraq, but they haven't been calm enough for me mm -hmm. to go there. Mm -hmm. um, so when this opportunity came, it, I had just been talking about it with colleagues. I had – I think I had 10 colleagues call me from Massachusetts and say, oh, my God, you've been talking about Haiti and I can't believe you're going to go. And I said, yeah, well, it fell in my lap. I didn't even make it happen. Mm. Some, you know, somebody Great. opened the door for me. Great. Dr. Kuhn, Carol Kuhn, um, tell us a little bit about uh, Convent Santé, a, a Maine-based, Portland-based organization. How did you get associated with them? Yeah, let's see. Well, I my first trip was in 2006, and I became involved with the group a little bit before that. And Convent Santé is a Maine-based um, program started in the year 2000 after um, a lot of research. I think they spent a couple of years looking um, to decide where um, they would put their energies and focus. And it's really um, different than many organizations in that it's really um, based on partnership and building um, capacity, um, not just going and doing clinics and leaving. So it takes a lot more time and, I suppose, energy in a way to um, build partnership with, um, with colleagues. Um, many, uh, I think, of the originating group, some had been Peace Corps volunteers and had done um, different type of work. And um, this may sound like a disparaging term, but they really wanted to make sure it wasn't uh, something like medical tourism, going and leaving. And, um, of course, with the, the catastrophe of the earthquake, um, that has changed for many, many groups, and there has been a need to, to come and, and go and supply um, real clinical services and leave. But um, so... Uh, Combatsante, as I said, works on partnership and building capacity. Um, uh, there's many volunteers, and we um, also do uh, work up here, meaning we belong to pods or committees and have monthly meetings um, working on certain projects in preparation for going down to Haiti. And many volunteers actually don't go to Haiti, um, but work on the projects here. And there's been a lot of expansion in the last few years. So there's a, a pediatric group. There's a maternal health um, group. I'm um, involved in the Public Health Committee and work with um, uh, Asian Santé, which are community health workers out at a public health clinic on the outskirts of the city of Capetian. Um, I should mention that the focus is in Capetian, which is in northern Haiti. And it's a city of about, it's the second largest city, about 180,000 people. And then the public health clinic, Fort St. Michel, services at prior to the earthquake, at least 40,000 people, and it's a number of neighborhoods built literally on refuse. Mm. The city apparently dumped garbage on the outskirts, and people moved in. So there, And I work with um, a group of eight very dedicated community health workers called Asian Sante, and Combat Sante actually um, supplied the money for their tuition, for their training, and now we, we supply their um, salaries. And uh, Combat Sante has... I think the equivalent of two and three-fourths full-time equivalent employees in Portland, and at least before the earthquake, um, at least 26 um, Haitian um, people who are employed by Combat Sante 
at the Justinian Hospital in Capetian or at Fort St. Michel. Mm. Maybe you could give us a, an idea of some of the kinds of projects you said you were working with these health workers who are going out into the community. Tell us about some of the projects um, versus um, providing direct care. Yeah, let's see. So the, um, the trip in January was my ninth trip, and it actually was planned prior to the earthquake and um, went on the same trip but didn't was not able to go through Port-au-Prince. But a couple years ago, worked on a project that did take about a year, and it had to do with um, hookworm treatment. And we um, trained the Asian Santé to actually use handheld GPS to in, do, in advance of the um, project and study, to do um, GPS plotting and coming up with a census. And uh, the Asian Santé, will be, they were quite encouraged and um, proud of themselves. They're probably the only um, community health workers to learn how to use a GPS, and they were very facile at this. And um, then did a randomized study and uh, tested in, um, for anemia prior to distribution of a medication called abendazole, which probably cost about two cents. Mm. And um, the idea, and they, we trained the Asian Santé on how to do hemoq, hemoglobin testing. And that also involved many um, skills that will be able to be used in the future in community outreach um, projects. That is, they learned how to take informed consent, how to um, do quality assurance on a quality control test on the machines each day, um, how to um, interview patients in a different way that they do in their everyday work in the field, and um, how to arrange follow-up and logging and keeping of um, data. And uh, so we did that, and then they, they did the anemia survey, and then um, that was followed by distribution of randomly selected 40, uh, 400 patients. Um, and then a few months later, screened again for anemia to check outcome. And then one year later, um, we did the same thing. There was another anemia screening and, and distribution. So that was um, a big project. Plus, it really will be useful in the future for the skills that they learn to do similar projects. Um, and we help, as I said, support their salaries, and they uh, go in the field and do home visits, prenatal, postnatal care. They do rally posts, which are big um, groups of people, and they give educational sessions and then vaccinations. And they refer patients into the clinic um, with uh, signs and symptoms of tuberculosis. And, and they do a lot of maternal child health training. Uh, they so you really, again, you use that word capacity. You're trying to build the capacity of, of folks there yes. to do this work over the long term. Right, mm. yeah. Mm. And uh, the hospital has a, a depot that we helped them organize, and we, um, one of the uh, compensante hired employees is um, a woman who helps organize the depot and distribution of supplies. As you can imagine, when we found there were supplies Oh, from hurricanes years ago and um, from the tsunami that were diverted and just m many unused, outdated, unnecessary supplies that are sitting, I guess, in the equivalent of warehouses. Mm. So that's a non-direct care um, project or system that we've been involved in. The group also has um, an infrastructure team. So I like to think of it almost as a mini Doctors Without Borders. I think there's about five men. Uh, Mainers, who I believe did not know each other before. Um, one is a water specialist, had been in the Peace Corps before. Other computer specialist, an electrician. Um, uh, they And they have worked together. They plan for months in advance their projects, and many of the supplies come down on a container. 
and they have revamped uh, the electrical system at the hospital. It's a little bit harder sometimes to find a colleague that's trained or that they can help train to that level, but um, they have. They was in a, what they call the electrocution room. And you know you're in trouble when electricians think that the electrical system is scary. <laughs> so they, and they, um, and the water specialists, and also through the help of international um, Kiwanis, they raised $67,000 and actually put a new well and pump at the hospital. Um, so systems like, like that. Great. We'll oh, get you right close to that microphone. Okay. Um, I'll just remind listeners, um, those who are listening to our very low power this morning and those who are listening uh, to us as we stream live, you're tuned to Talk of the Towns here on WERU Community Radio. And we're talking about main connections to Haiti in the studio. You've just heard from Dr. Carol Kuhn, a physician with Seaport Family Practice in Belfast, and her work with Convict Santé. Um, you've heard from a little bit from Liz Durham, who's a physical therapist, and her first trip to, to Haiti. And uh, now we want to talk a little bit with Linda Robinson, who's a nurse midwife from Bar Harbor. Um, she's with the Women's Health Center there, um, a former uh, Peace Corps, and also Doctors Without Borders. And she returned from a trip to Haiti um, about three weeks ago, I guess. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved in this particular venture. Yeah, my experience was uh, a little different from the other two. Um, I, of course, when I heard about the earthquake, was wanting to do something to help, not quite sure what. Um, I, I'm i not afraid to travel into areas like that, so was willing to go. I did get a um, an email from Doctors Without Borders saying they were looking for people that spoke French that were willing to go right away, um, but wanted a three-month commitment, which I couldn't give because of my job. But I was trying to think of another way to go to offer my skills shorter term. Um, so an email came out from our national organization saying there was a group called Midwives for Haiti that were in desperate need of help. I mean, no matter whether there's a you know natural disaster or whatever happens, women still are having babies. Um, and you know the maternal death rate and neonatal rate in Haiti is terrible. Um, so that need is there regardless. Um, but this was a mechanism to, this was a, a means for me to go and offer some services. What I thought, based on the information I got, was there were groups of midwives working there that I would be going to assist. It, as it turned out, this uh, organization, which is a nonprofit organization started by a midwife from Virginia who went on a, med on a uh, church mission group, um, and recognized the need for midwives in especially Port-au-Prince, um, started this organization. Well, there are three sites, two which are pretty well established, um, one in Henshi and one in Carrefour. The other, which I thought was established when I got there, I found out it wasn't, um, was in City Soleil, a notorious slum. It's a, it's a part of Port-au-Prince that is a slum beyond anything I've ever seen before. And... Um, it's the poorest part of the city, and no one wants to work there. Um, it's difficult. I mean, the, the, the physical conditions are difficult. It, it is like living in a refuse pit. The, the, the trash was something I couldn't even fathom when I saw it. Well, it turns out that six of us arrived, six midwives from all over the country, we'd never met each other, arrived in, uh, in Port-au-Prince, all kind of confused about what we were supposed to be doing, all with our four suitcases full of donated medical supplies. Um, 
and realized that we were just going to set up a, a clinic on our own. So it wasn't possible for us to be doing any births because we didn't have a facility or a, a waste disposal system or anything, or even running water. We were given space in a church to set up a clinic, um, and we just pulled it together. I mean, we, so we spent two weeks um, see. We told them we would see women and children. Uh, we did see we did see many pregnant women, but many, many, many post traumatic stress victims, um, and just primary, just you know, diseases and problems that they have, just in general. A lot of what we saw was not related to the earthquake. Um, the, the earthquake was a horrible disaster, but the people who live in this part of Port-au-Prince. Are, are living in terrible conditions, and their their problems are ongoing, and they've been there. Um, and you know, much of what I did was not associated with the earthquake. It was just there is a huge need. Eventually, I mean, it would be nice if to think that out of that, you know, if there there continue to be midwives that go, that we could somehow find finding and funding and some infrastructure to set up a birth center there, because right now. The only place for them to go to deliver is a small hospital that's funded now by uh, by Doctors Without Borders, but it is nowhere near uh, as big as it needs to be for the kind of volume that they have. Um, yeah. Well, so um, the conditions are each um, different, but um, maybe you can help listeners kind of see from your perspective. We're not looking for a history lesson, but give us a sense of how we got here um, in terms of, of, of what's happening in Haiti. Anybody got a quick history lesson of, of, of how you think we kind of uh, got to this place in terms of our connection with Haiti? and, and uh, The U.S. connection with yeah, it? Yeah. U.S. Connection. Proximity. Mm-hmm. It's close. Mm-hmm. It took four and a half hours to get there. Mm-hmm. You know, my, you know, the work I've done before, it took me four and a half days to get there, mm-hmm. you know, minimum. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's part of it. It's, it's easy to get to. There's a direct flight from Miami, and it's not hard to get to Miami. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's part of it. I think, uh, uh, this is my opinion, um, that uh, so, some of us feel a, a responsibility to, to help um, help in a situation that we helped create, um, the United States is partly responsible for for the mess that Haiti's in now. Again, having nothing to do with the earthquake, but um, the country, the infrastructure there is in shambles. Um, and, you know, it's a country made up of slaves. It was a French colony. Um, slaves were imported to, to work in the sugarcane industry. And then, you know, when they gained independence, you know, I mean, there's a long, long, long sordid history, but um, the infrastructure was never strong. There are always, um, you know, there were financial gains for us to be associated with them in many ways. But, the, I mean, the real crux of the problem that, that I see was the early 1980s when the AIDS epidemic happened there, and there was so much focus on Haiti being the epicenter mm-hmm. of this terrible disease and tourism stopped, just ended. And there is no way for Caribbean countries to survive without tourism. Mm. And, and and it's just non-existent. I mean, people ask me all the time, what can I do to help? And I say, go on vacation there. <laughs> it's really, I, my feeling is the only thing that's going to help that country is to support the local businesses. 
and tourism is it. Mm. Carol, what would you add to that kind of picture of, of, of what you see in Haiti? Yeah, not too much to really add in, um, you know, about the history of Papa Doc and mm. all the, the corruption there. Um, I thought it was interesting what you said about tourism. Some of us, b- before the earthquake and then after, had thought up in the Capetian area, I think it used to be called sort of, it was, well, it was probably a beautiful harbor, and it's where the king had his palace and everything. But we also been thinking, like, maybe somebody could create a little bit of, like, ecotourism and include the, um, the history. There's this beautiful, I've only seen it by air, the citadel, um, perched up on top of a mountain, and some have walked there. It's pretty strenuous and there um, there are some ruins and there are other areas that we thought maybe somebody with a real interest um, could develop uh, some kind of tourism that would include history and environment seeing what's really the the beautiful country that's been devastated Um, and that because now I think there is an interest and people wonder what could they do and that is something that you know some people could do. Mm. So, and and I think to the proximity. I mean, it's the poorest um, nation in the Western Hemisphere, and it's just so, so, so close. If I had not been to Africa, um, my first trip um, in 2006, the trip from the airport into the city, is always memorable for for everyone. And I, I think I wouldn't have been able to believe it if I had not been in, in Africa. Mm-hmm. It's so so similar. Mm. Yeah. Liz, what did you find? You said you at, at one point you it was chaos, but there was some organization to that chaos in your in your experience. I I have to say that I I, I mean I again I don't think this is anything that no, other people haven't expressed. But I do think there's a lot of corruption in their government, which you see in a lot of third world countries. I, I spent a lot of time in third world countries as well, um, so that's 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 devastating. It's hard to to watch some of that, um, <clears throat> but what I did see. Again, where I, there was a lot of disorganization. I, I was looking for the Red Cross the whole time I was there. My company gave a significant amount of money to them. I never saw them. Hmm. I did see them on CNN a couple of times, I guess, but I didn't really see them around. Um, but I, like this, this particular hospital that I went with, MediShare, the, pro, the project out of Miami, I, I have to say I'm really quite impressed with them because they're trying to bring a level of organization to their hospital there. They were already established within Port-au-Prince and had a small facility which was devastated during the earthquake. So when they started their inflatable or tent hospital next to the airport, it started from nothing. The stories of the days, the first days after the earthquake were so devastating, they brought tears to your eyes just listening to people talk about them. But watching them start to have a sense of organization, it's some of these organizations from America that actually, I, that I feel that are, and, and some of the Europeans, but mostly American, that are going in and giving a little bit of sense of um, organization and control. MediShare is not going anywhere. They're on the in, on the verge of moving into a hospital inside of Port-au-Prince, um, some, probably during the summer. And they do need to, I have mixed feelings about that because I don't, you know, I don't know what what the facilities are like, but the fact that they're there to stay and that they're want ongoing, like the the, pro- the project here in Maine, they're an ongoing support to Haiti, and that's what the Haitians need. Mm, that kind of ongoing sense that there's there's uh, someone they could turn to to ask for that that kind of capacity building, as, as you've mentioned. Yeah, yeah. So the, the um, connections that you each have had, each, each different. Um, anything that. Um, 
you'd say sh should mark a good organization um, in terms of, of what should be there? You've mentioned capacity building. You've mentioned kind of being there for the long run. Um, Linda, you've talked a, a little bit about if you were to go back, you would see some some things that you could do as, as a midwife or as a group of midwives. What what, what should um, organizations in the, in the U.S. or in Maine be thinking about if they wanted to make a difference in, in Haiti? My feeling is training mm -hmm. Haitians to do the job. Yes. Um, I would love to see a program set up to educate Haitian women to be midwives mm -hmm. and care for the women there in a, in a reasonable way, um, a reasonable, safe, culturally sensitive, self-sustaining way. Mm. Um, I don't believe that, you know, Funding projects forever is the way to go. I mean, I, not that I have the answer of what is you know going to work and what isn't, because I saw so many NGOs in there. I saw the Red Cross everywhere, um, as well as uh, NGOs I couldn't even name, and thousands of church groups are in there. There's so many aid organizations, and I didn't really see them working together. And I understand why. You know, they all have their donor base. They all have to answer to their boards. Um, but I saw a lot of duplication of services and so much money going in because of this crisis that I didn't feel like was being well spent or well used to make the benefits sustainable. You know, I yeah. So there's a difference between um, ongoing kind of community development capacity building and emergency aid. And, oh, um, huge. Yeah. So that's that in terms of where we might um, think about putting our money now. It's in that long-term capacity building. So yeah. Convict Sante um, has that kind of track record, and it sounds like um, the organization you're working with has a long-term um, kind of uh, presence there. I do. I, I agree. I agree with you in that. I, I, it's, it's interesting. I think that because they don't have a very strong government, that there, when you get when you're there, there is a huge sense of disorganization. It's mm -hmm. it and it does feel like nobody's pulling together. And even Project MediShare is trying their hardest. But when you're dealing with 400 people with amputations and wound vacs and infections and tuberculosis and AIDS, I mean, in every night, five and six gunshot wounds and aftershock would create more injuries. I mean, it's it's total chaos. It's like survival mode. Mm -hmm. I can't even, ex I think you guys probably witnessed that too. It's almost difficult to think about becoming more organized when you're when you're in the heart of it. Mm -hmm. You're working 16-hour days, 14-hour days. You're going to bed in, in this horrific heat. You're exhausted and emotionally spent. And it's just so overwhelming that it's almost hard to move beyond that. But there's no centralized government kind of kind of organizing it to make it to make them all work together mm. again that's why I think I have my perspective you know your perspective changes when you come home <laughs> looking back upon where I've been as much as I maybe criticized the organization that I was with I think when I was there just because it's so chaotic it's just not you know where we come from a very organized medical system um, that was a little hard to, to manage but once you step away from it, I realize that they're working towards it. It's in Rome wasn't built in a day. It's going mm -hmm. to take time. But it's true. There's so many organizations, church groups. People just arrive, you know, on airplanes. And some of these church groups have a lot of money, mm -hmm. and they arrive with amazing supplies. And but I, they're not long term. They're they some of them. Some of those are in and out. I mean, I'm sure mm -hmm. there's some that are more long term. Mm -hmm. But 
but there isn't anyone kind of managing mm. all of it. Mm. Like I just remind listeners that they're tuned to Talk of the Towns, uh, listening to about main connections to Haiti. In our studios, we have Liz Durham, um, physical therapist from Belfast with a company called Genesis, which works with uh, um, um, nursing homes, basically. And she's been with a project called uh, Project MediShare. Um, Dr. Carol Kuhn is a physician in Belfast Seaport Family Practice, and she traveled, um, has traveled for a number of years with Combat Santé organization in uh, Portland, based in Portland. And Linda Robinson is a nurse midwife from the Women's Health Center in Bar Harbor, and she recently returned. I don't think we can take phone calls today, or if, if we do, this, there's only going to be a few because we're only broadcasting at low power. If you do want to call us, you can call us at one 866 Six two five nine three seven eight, or locally, probably locally would be good. Four six nine zero five hundred. We are streaming live at www.weru.org, and that's maybe how you're listening to us. You could call us as, as well, one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. I'd like to hear some stories about some of the people that you um, have worked with and, and who are memorable to you, and, and maybe tell us why they're memorable to you. People that you'd like to go back and, and uh, work with or visit. Dr. Kuhn? Okay. Um, let's see. I can think of well, quite a few, but um, maybe I'll start with a, we, a woman we call Telemach because her name is um, Joseline, Dr. Joseline Telemach. But the tradition is you call people by their last name. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, um, Telemach is a wonderful person, and she's a wom- an obstetrician-gynecologist who finished her residency training at um, the Justinian Hospital in Capation, which is where our partnership is. And um, one of our um, volunteers, uh, Dr. Eva Lathrop, who did her training at Maine Medical, she's an uh, OBGYN in Atlanta, she worked very closely, she works very closely with the OBGYN residents there. And um, Intelimac was a real star, and we were fortunate or perhaps unfortunate in a way for her that she was not employed when she finished her residency training, which is often the case, but we were fortunate that she did not choose to leave the country, which many well-trained, many trained and well-trained um, physicians aspire to. And as uh, Eva would say, uh, Telemach is just, she's a born community leader and, and clinician. And um, so anyhow, we were fortunate that uh, uh, Telemach, we, Combatsante em- employs her now to, um, she continues to teach and help train other uh, residents at the Justinian Hospital, but she also, um, the uh, Fort St. Michelle Public Health Clinic has become now a hospital, and they don't have overnight patients, but they have now a maternity um, birthing center that complete could do C-sections if they don't have anesthesia. So anyhow, Telemach is um, running the maternal child health program out there, and she um, routinely now trains TBAs, which are traditional birth attendants, and there's about 80 traditional birth attendants. Now, these are, um, in, in a sense, midwives without any formal training, and they also were probably ostracized, um, in a way, from the medical community, and they, but they are providing um, the bulk of deliveries. I believe only 20% of deliveries occur in the in the hospital or less or less yeah and the rest are in homes and so now she has monthly um, training sessions with the traditional birth attendants which have been wonderful they you know really embrace that and feel um, much more part of the the medical community I guess you could say the and the idea was to really help prevent um, infant mortality and maternal um, mortality and to encourage them and train them to um, send obstetrical emergencies in sooner and um, so I've been able to observe some of those um, training sessions 
I was quite surprised to find that there were a number of men that were traditional birth attendants. And, um, and apparently, the, it's, some of that is because of security. A lot of deliveries happen at night, and it's not safe for women to go out to um, help mm. assist in deliveries. Mm. It was very uncertain how they get paid, if they get paid at all. You know, they're not part of the Ministry of Health um, system. And so, um, like many Haitian um, community health workers and clinicians, they are they are incredible motivational speakers and educators. And uh, it's been wonderful to to um, watch Telemach and to also go into mm. the field with her. The Asian Santé, the community health workers that I work with, they this year um, s- started doing mothers groups in these neighborhoods, and I um, was able to attend two of those sessions on my last trip. And about uh, 25 or 30 women, and they're meeting weekly, and they actually have a set curriculum, and uh, the mothers are taught how to um, identify symptoms of tuberculosis, um, malaria, taught about um, oral rehydration salts, how to make the solution, um, diarrhea illness, which is a huge killer in children, and um, it was it was very gratifying. They were very proud. They, they obviously knew the material, and um, it was also gratifying because I do... Um, training sessions with the Asian Sante, mostly now using a text um, that's out in many languages, including Creole, um, where there is no doctor. I first knew it in Spanish, don't they know I doctor? And it, ha- it has very basic information about um, diarrheal illness, vaccinations, um, re- acute respiratory illnesses. And I keep it quite, in the Asian Sante, each have a Creole version of it, and I try to keep it quite um, practical. And so it was gratifying. I went to one of the sessions, and it was all—it was about diarrheal illness, and it had was clearly somewhat taken from my trip six months prior to that. Mm. Um, but Telemach is just a real um, leader, and I think she has been discouraged at times too that what she's doing maybe doesn't have great impact. But she also um, there's a Haitian uh, a Haitian proverb that we quote a lot of times, and it means. Um, let me see if I can find it. Uh, well, it's a little by little the bird um, builds its nest, <laughs> and um, it it sort of uh, really shows what what's mm. been going on on there. And um, Telemark also, um, Eva and Telemark have done a, a project on postpartum um, contraception, and interviewing women and seeing what their desires are and and needs. And she um, went to Uganda to present that. Um, that paper, and that, and uh, and I think that was really quite a, a coup for, for her. And we hope mm-hmm. that she'll, you know, continue for years. The but there is a big women's health um, initiative in Combatsante, and in, in I believe it was about 2006, they did a a, a focus group. They had planned many focus groups on women's health issues, and uh, this was many of the women the first time they'd ever been asked anything about their life. Or their their needs, and they identified a few needs and one uh, or problems. One was insecurity. Another was um, not feeling welcome at the hospital when they would arrive there, not knowing where to go or what to do, and um, and certainly um, contraception, which there's a lot of um, uh, confusion about that. And many people have asked me, you know, why why aren't you know contraception is available in some capacity? Why do women not avail themselves of that. And and I guess there have really been studies proven that until the economy improves and when women know that their children, that they can afford to have their children and have their children fed, then 
then they will use contraception. And it's very political. And also, um, they are very dependent upon men um, for their to sustain their life. And a lot of time that means having children. Mm. So it's a, it's a complex issue. Um, Linda, you must have found some of that s- same set of dynamics in the Congo. Oh, in Congo, yeah. Mm. Um, because the mortality rate under five years old is so high, it's very difficult to get women to understand that if they limit the number of children they have, their children will be healthier. Right. They see that if they have 10 children, five of them are going to die, and then they'll only have five children, so they have to keep having children. Mm. Um, and the mortality rate, infant mortality rate is very high in Haiti as well. Um, and I mean, I'm, I'm extrapolating, but uh, I'm assuming that partly comes into it. <clears throat> that was certainly the case in Congo. Mm. There's so little, uh, you know, there's so, um, the education is so difficult because their associations are so immediate. You know, they're, you know, if the baby died, you know, right after they breastfed for the first time, they'll make this association that their milk is bad. And it takes a long, long time to educate, you know, about what the real causes of death are. So that's a huge problem with contraception. It's just not an option because half the kids die. Mm. So, but your approach sounds like it was very similar to Telemach's approach in terms of working with people who were going out almost as volunteers. I mean, I, maybe they were paid by the Ministry of Health in you the know, Congo, but it was it yeah. was that kind of um, each one teach one kind of a, approach. Right. And that's I applaud you. That is exactly what I feel needs to be done. And yes, uh, uh, payment is important, but also prestige is. Mm-hmm. And even if there's no monetary exchange, um, if they're elevated a little bit in their community um, to a different level because of their education or training, that, that is a form of payment. They, they, and there's their own sort of little local infrastructure that I certainly don't understand. Mm. But there is an exchange <laughs> somehow that doesn't necessarily come in our Western form of a weekly paycheck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, that's very um, prevalent in what we obvious in what we've seen in Combat Sante. The Asian Sante, um, they've expressed that. They're, they're leaders in their community, and they're very well respected, and they really, they, they honor that. And they're very um, discouraged or disappointed when they don't have more in the way of knowledge or supplies or feel that they can help um, their patients, and they live in the communities that in which they work. And um, another woman, Gracilia Senat, is one of the um, Asian Sante, and apparently she went through the initial training, and but it, in 2003, when Combat Sante got involved in the public health um, sector, they we didn't have enough money to supply, I think, more than just the first two Asian Sante, and it went from there. But apparently Gracilia worked for one year she, without pay. Mm-hmm. She came and she worked, and she did what she was trained for. And um, and she's a wonderful woman, and she has a song that uh, is about Compensante, and she uses that um, to sing and to bring people together. Mm-hmm. I was at one of the educational sessions that took place in one of these neighborhoods in a little church with a tin roof, and she gathered about 150 people and um, by singing. And she's a... Um, and, and she she walks along, and everybody knows her. And just what you said, Linda, about um, the that without that all the respect that they they gain really means a lot. And we've dropped some of them off on the way home after the end of a day or a training session, and um, and they tell us that they are better off 
than their neighbors, and it is really hard to believe because they are living right in, in the refuse, but they, they, they consider themselves, they have a job. And I, you know, each time I go back and I think, oh, gee, um, Oba and Betty and Gracilia and um, Wiginson, they're, oh, they're all still here. And then I think, well, yes, they have a job and they're actually getting paid because Compensanti does um, pay them. Each time I go back, I also hear that people haven't been paid by the Ministry of Health for maybe six months. Mm-hmm. Um, the medical students um, provide, and the physicians sometimes provide, the money for the medication for the patients they're taking care of. Um, and, and that's another thing Combatsanti does at, at the hospital is um, provides salaries for um, two pediatricians, an internal medicine physician, and it's a teaching hospital. So there's um, many medical students, but nobody was actually teaching them, um, the residents or the medical students. The private, the physicians who were that that was perhaps their role would maybe maybe be there in the morning and then go to their private clinics in the afternoon. So that's been a big part of the partnership mm-hmm. is um, uh, supplying salaries for Haitian physicians to actually teach at this teaching hospital. Mm-hmm. So, Liz, how about you? Do you have any uh, people that you kind of remember and said, oh, I'd like to go back and visit this person? Uh, I have <clears throat> I have a lot like I'm sure you, these guys do as well. Um, I think I'd speak to one of the some of my patients that mm-hmm. I had because that's a different a little bit of a different venue, and um, I had this one patient that came in um, one evening. I, mind you, the hospital that I was in had about 180 patients on army cots in one tent and about a varying amount of uh, pediatrics NICU, which is where I primarily worked in the ICU, which is was in one tent um, in the OR. They're all under one under one tent. Um, but one night around 3 in the morning, what happens when you're in a um, mass unit um, in Haiti after an earthquake, um, that when there's an aftershock or um, when people are desperate and they've gone in to rob somebody who ha- does is lucky enough to have a home still standing, uh, you end up with the gunshot wounds and the um, amputations at 2 or 3 in the morning. And they come into the tent and they just scream out, orthopedics, anesthesiologists, and wake up all 180 employees that are there or volunteers. Um, well, one night we had this 55-year-old man who came in who ended up being, we found out later, was a driver for SOS. It's an orphanage organization from the United States, and he's been a driver for them for many years. Um, and they, he was, there was, it was an attempted carjacking. Um, he was ended up being, he was trying to save the vehicle. Um, he was shot um, and is now, we were thinking he might end up being a quad, but he's definitely a paraplegic, but is getting some upper extremity um, strength back. Uh, he ended up crashing his car into a 17-year-old boy who traumatically ended up losing his left lower extremity, so his left leg. So they were in the ICU together, which is um, the room that I'm in right now. It's about the half the size of this, with people on uh, blow-up mattresses on top of army cots. And um, the poor guy was lying on a cot. I was, and the doctor wanted me to get him up to a makeshift wheelchair that we'd put together for him day one, and he had to stare at this kid who he had injured. And he quietly cried, and I speak a little French. Um, if any of my friends are listening, they know how poor it is, but thank God it got me through. Thank God that I know a few French children's songs because that got me through a lot too. Um, so we were speaking together, and the entire time this man can't move. Um, he needed a halo. We had him in an Aspen collar, which is sort of a hard neck collar, but he really needed um, something more significant. And thank you, thank you for coming. Thank you for helping the Haitian people, you know, blah, blah, all all day long. Every time I went to move him, you know, but he said, I'm so sorry I injured this poor boy and I've impacted his life. And 
just devast- the man was amazing, just mm-hmm. amazing. And um, the day that I left, I went to speak to him, and um, you know he was getting a little bit of hand control back, and he grabbed my hand, and and he t- again told me um, how much he appreciates all that we've all done. Here's a man who has uh, you know very little to look forward to at this point. Um, I think he was one of my um, on top of the pediatric children that I worked with. He was probably mm-hmm. my biggest. Um, he's amazing to be mm. that devastated, to have nothing, to be that injured, and to be nothing but gracious and thankful for. And that's the way the Haitian people are. I mean, I, I can't tell you we're there without running water, with hand sanitizer only. That's you know, universal precautions. <laughs> Doesn't work for singing Happy Birthday twice under running water. <laughs> um, and you know, just amazing what they what we, they live through. Um, we didn't have sheets. We ran out of diapers. We uh, were using you know surgical gowns for for um for chucks and i mean it was crazy it was insane and they did nothing but thank us help us the families and not speaking about one person in in um in general but the families would live in the hospital with their patients Mm -hmm. and they're caring for them helping to you know do whatever they can move them you know you know there's no like i said there's a few porta potties about 200 feet away from the tent Mm -hmm. and not a lot of garbage disposal um and but they're in there working hard Mm-hmm. helping where they can and mm-hmm. with smiles on their faces. There's one man who is a minister who comes out of the tent every afternoon uh, just because and brings his guitar and sings. I have him on, he's on YouTube, I think. I have a couple of his videos on my on my Blackberry. And big smile and singing in the whole tent. People would rise up and sing and chant and, and it would be the most, it's the best part of the day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Linda, people that you remember that you'd like to see again? Yeah, I've been thinking about that. One of the um, things that was disappointing to me was I wasn't working with Haitian women, midwives. I mean, we, we, we certainly saw them as patients, but um, the clinic that I was working in were, you know, six American midwives. Um, but the place where we stayed, it was a school um, we slept, the women all slept in one room, men all slept in another. There was a, a place where church groups came through for a week at a time. Um, so, you know, there'd be 60, between 30 and 60 people staying there at the same time. And the principal of that school, her name was Jackie, uh, this lovely Haitian woman who was just exuded wisdom and serenity, and I was so drawn to her. Um, and one afternoon, the school started after the earthquake while I was there. It was the first day of school. And the children were terrified. We, there, were, there were many schools that just pancaked during the earthquake, and the children never got out. Um, and st- the bodies are still in there. The, the rubble has just been too impossible to clear away. So the children were quite terrified to come back to school. The school where we were staying obviously didn't fall down, but um, they were still scared. And one afternoon... I was talking to her um, about how discouraged I was because I felt like I'm, I'm not, what I'm doing here isn't sustainable. You know, I'm, yes, I'm, you know, caring for some people for the two weeks that I'm here, but, um, but I'm not really teaching anyone. And she said, you don't understand how just by being here, you have made a difference. The children didn't want to come back to school. They were scared, but they saw that the Blanc, the whites, were, were staying in here. And the kids said, well, they wouldn't be staying here if it wasn't safe. So she said just just that gave the kids enough security to be feel safe enough to come back to school. So that was that made me feel good. Mm, great. 
Right. You're tuned to Talk of the Towns. We have uh, about 10 minutes left. There may be phone calls out there, uh, those of you who are listening to us with our low power this morning, or uh, streaming live um, via WERU.org, 1-866-625-9378, or locally, 469-0500. We're talking about main connections to Haiti. You've heard just recently from Linda Robinson, nurse midwife from Bar Harbor. Dr. Carol Kuhn is with us from Seaport Family Practice, and her work has been with Conbert Sante. And Liz Durham, a physical therapist in Belfast, and her work has been with Project uh, Medishare. Um, what is it that um, you'd like Maine people, you know, people who are listening to us, um, I suppose they could be all over the world through the web, but mo- mostly Maine people, what would you like them to know about Haiti and about um, you know, what, might, what, what might come next, um, Dr. Kuhn? Oh, let's see. Well, I think um, many people ha- asked me before the earthquake um, and now after in a different um, manner, uh, you know, what do you think could happen for Haiti or how, mm. you know, should this nation, you know, just sink into the sea? Those mm. were questions before mm. the earthquake. Mm-hmm. I think people have a lot more compassion mm-hmm. afterwards. But, you know, there's been so much corruption there. You know, what could really turn things around or why, you know, the Dominican Republic is just next door? How have they been able to have a different um, economy or healthcare system, and um, it's a very you know difficult question. But I think now with the um, as the Haitian people call the earthquake, the catastrophe or the event, um, that maybe there is a silver uh, lining. That and I think that we really have to learn from the mistakes of the recent um, past, and also as um, neighbors and um, helpers uh, to really to have sort of a different focus and to really look more towards a, a balance and to strive to have um, less social and economic exclusion and to really embrace the, um, the Haitian people's values and their ambitions for their nation. And, you know, I hope that there can um, be some change, but there really has to be a different structure and approach. And I really think um, partnership is is key. And I think Combatsante sort of stands well, because I forgot to mention that the Combatsante is a Creole term. Combat means partnership. It's um, It really means tilling your field while tilling your neighbor's field. And so that's partnership, and the word Sante means health. Mm-hmm. And that's why the organization um, picked um, that that name. Mm-hmm. Liz, what, what, what do you want um, your neighbors in, in Maine to know about Haiti at this point? <clears throat> I, I think I'm in agreement with um, Dr. Kuhn, and I, I have to say that I, I think education is the key. And um, while I was there, I worked with, we had transporters and translators. They're all men. No, none, none were women. Um, but multiple of uh, multiple men that were helping us do all this hard labor work, lifting patients, moving. Some of them were med students that their school collapsed and there's no school. Others would like to go to physical therapy school because there's going to be a huge need for that. Um, I see a CNA program. (laughs) I think that that would be one of the greatest things, and I hope that Project MediShare, once they get settled into a real building, that that would be something that they could bring to start training these people to become CNAs in some of these hospitals because, number one, that would give them a job, and they would be helping their people. Um, But I think education is the key. And it can't be a, you know, I, I know that money's tight for all of us. I, we fundraise for everything, our kids to graduate, and, you know, nothing is, nothing is free anymore. But there does need to be some form of financial um, support to provide that. But I think that if we can provide consistent help through um, 
Carol's group, through Project MediShare, through different organizations, and develop that relationship and assist with the education piece, I see that as being huge. Mm -hmm. Linda Robinson? Um, yeah, and thinking about the education, you know, children have to pay to go to school there. Education is not free, even primary school. Mm -hmm. um, there are no taxes. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing to support the education system. All the children have to be sponsored. Um, and, you know, when, when people are looking to, to donate, whatever it is, you know, supplies or money or in a situation like this, um, I really encourage people to, to look into the, the organization that you're donating to and hold them accountable for how the money gets spent. Um, an, an earth, a natural disaster is what I call, a, you know, a sexy crisis. Um, there's a lot of media attention. There, there are really, um, you know, the, the photos and the visuals are so, so overwhelming that people send lots and lots of money. Um, it, it may not all be spent efficiently. Sponsoring a child to get through primary school may be a f affordable, very effective way to feel like you've done something to help uh, an individual. Mm. Great. Well, it sounds like from our theme music, it's towards the end. I'll give you la one last word maybe to, to uh, talk ab about how, how to be um, involved, um, maybe contact information for Convent Sante, and uh, then we'll wrap up. Okay. Well, um, Combat Sante, as I said, is main based in Portland, and there is um, a website. You can reach it by two websites, www.healthyhaiti.org or www.combitsante, K-O-N-B-I-T-S-A-N-T.org. It'll get you to the same place. Or the phone number in Portland is... 207-347-6733. And um, it's a very good website with lots of information and really pertinent links. Great. So. Anybody else got any contact information? Project MediShare, if you Google them, you'll find it on the University of Miami. Great information there, great blogging, some videos of the of the earthquake, the of their hospital, and volunteer forms. If you're interested in going with Project MediShare, they have um, an online volunteer um, application. Great. Well, I want to thank you all for being with us and t sharing your stories. I think this has been a, a really important conversation to have here on WERU. And we've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Town. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balmain House Highland music recording. Thanks once again to our guests in the studio, Linda Robinson, um, nurse midwife from the Women's Health Center in Bar Harbor, Dr. Carol Kuhn, physician with Seaport Family Practice in Belfast, and she worked with Convet Sante, and Liz Durham, a physical therapist with uh, Genesis Group, and she has been working with Product MediShare, Project MediShare. Thanks to those uh, underwriters who are helping support this wonderful um, radio station. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering, and stay tuned for On the Wing. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning.
Foundation, partnering with donors and nonprofits statewide to strengthen Maine communities through grants and scholarships on the web at maincf.org. When Haiti was devastated by the earthquake in January of this year, Maine people responded immediately through donations of cash and material. In the weeks and months since, Maine people have also responded as volunteers, giving of themselves. This is Ron Beard of University of Maine Cooperative.